turn to verse 14. This is God's word. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. The word authority raises concerns in our generation. Our culture views authority as something to be grimly endured or simply overthrown. Would you believe it was already back in the 1970s that the common bumper sticker first appeared with two words, question authority? Not many such bumper stickers anymore. You know why? Because the message has been fully embraced. It's the default position of our society. If you want a radical bumper sticker today, you have to write, don't question authority. You get quite a reaction. Here's what we find interesting about the original bumper sticker, question authority. It still implies there's authority. And that we cannot simply do away with authority. Bumper sticker doesn't say, do away with authority. Because you can't. And everyone recognizes there's no such thing as a society or an organization without any authority, uh, a non-authority. It can't be a complete absence of authority. Even if someone were to overthrow the authority, guess what? There's a new authority, and everyone would begin to question the new authority. And all this background to say why people don't like chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Paul claims here very clearly a position of authority, as he's been doing from the beginning of the letter, that he's an apostle. But here, now, he even claims the authority of spiritual father. In claiming that he is an authority figure, Paul then asks the people not just to heed him, but even to imitate him. And to top it all off, Paul warns them in our passage that if they did not, he possessed the authority to discipline them, as we'll see when we get to the last verse. So as we study this last section of chapter 4, as we've studied the whole chapter now, we have to see the difference between authority and authoritarianism. Authority is being in a position or having the ability to influence people. To give instructions, make commands for the good of others. But authoritarianism is enforcing a strict obedience to certain human leaders at the expense of those people retaining any personal freedom in the matter. It's when authority figures fail to show concern for the opinions or concerns of others that the authority figures become domineering, like dictators, and that is authoritarianism. Godly leaders exercise what Paul describes here as a type of authority that's seeking the good of everyone in harmony with each other. See, the Corinthians had a base problem that we see since the Garden of Eden, that we see in every generation, we see in our generation. 
They were in rebellion against authority in the church in Corinth. Yet Paul still came to them with fatherly care in our passage, not with authoritarianism. Paul did not want to use his apostolic authority to discipline them. He didn't want to do that at all. He preferred that they would respond to his stern warnings and follow his example in the things he's been writing for chapters. In fact, he's got a lot more chapters to go. He, he would prefer that they would take what he's saying and follow his example. But whether he comes to them with discipline or whether he's giving them the example and they follow that way, he puts the decision in their hands, as we'll see when we get to the last verse. Now, where are we? We're changing tone from a previous passage. The the previous passage, he sternly rebuked the congregation with a tone of sarcasm, nearly mocking them for their errors. For example, verse 8, already you have all you want, already you become rich, without us you became kings, so on. But he has a very different tone here, as often happens in writing a letter, you have one tone and then you have a different topic, different paragraph. Beginning in verse 14, that previous tone is now abruptly replaced by a soothing tone of tenderness and affection as a caring father reasoning with his wayward children. These are people that Paul knew. He, he was there. He was among them. Be, before God called him away and he's traveling now as a missionary in other places, he knew these people to whom he's writing. And despite their exasperating behavior, Paul clearly cared about them and for them. So in verse 15... Paul called himself the spiritual father of the believers in Corinth. And this simply meant that Paul was the first missionary ever to preach to the gospel in the city of Corinth, and it resulted in their conversion. So he's like their spiritual father. Paul led them to Christ, resulting in spiritual birth from above. So God in heaven became their heavenly father. Paul became their earthly spiritual father. So this tells us, right on the surface, that there exists a legitimate type of human spiritual fatherhood, human spiritual authority, and that all of us as Christians need to understand it and practice it in all of our churches. That's what's clear. This was written 2,000 years ago, and it's been true all the way down to today. So that's what we're studying now. My main point is that Christ calls us to follow him. He provides spiritual guides. We'll see many people claim to be our spiritual guide, verses 14 to 15. God raised up true spiritual guides for us, verses 15 to 19. And true spiritual guides show kingdom power and love in verses 20 and 21. Read verses 14 and then the first half of 15 again as we look. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many authorities. So God uses human instruments for spreading the gospel. Paul had been the human agent in Corinth. Why did Paul write about this? Why is chapter 4 even here? Why is this passage here at the conclusion of chapter 4? He says why. Not to make them ashamed, but rather to admonish them as Paul's loved children. Admonish is the word nuthetic. Some of you might be familiar with the whole stream of nuthetic counseling. It's Christian counseling that's helping people see the results of their actions and therefore make good and better decisions and changes. Neuthetic counseling, admonish, to take someone and help them to see the consequences of their actions, for example. So since they were Paul's children spiritually, he's their father spiritually, he's now speaking to them on that ground. In verse 15, he then compares that to the guides. They were guides in Christ. So they're the people who are left in Corinth teaching after Paul the father left. The countless guides in Christ. Now, the trouble is, 
there's a person in the ancient culture that he's referencing that we don't have in our culture today. So I'm doing my best to explain to you what this was like. The closest we have is a live-in nanny who would also be a tutor who would also drive the children around. That's the best I can do to, to explain to you what he's talking about, these guides. A nanny, tutor, bus driver, life coach, all rolled into one for the children. And the main role of those ancient Greek nanny tutors was caring for the student out of a paid duty or out of an obedience to the instructions the parents gave. Okay? So now what he says is they have countless guides. And here the word is myriad or thousands. Revelation says myriads upon myriads of angels, thousands and thousands of angels. We have thousands of guides, these nanny tutors. He says you could translate this 10,000 nanny tutors. And they all have the purpose of caring for the children. Protection, guidance, general supervision. Whenever the parents are absent, all these other people look after you and attend to your needs. We have the similar idea. We have coaches, we have tutors, we have teachers, we have Boy Scout leaders, and all the things across our lives. But it's rolled up into this one person for their culture. And all these people look after you. They attend to your needs. But the nanny tutor is not mainly motivated by love for the child. He's contrasting them with the father. You don't have many fathers, he writes. If a parent guides you, it's entirely from paternal love. The parent is willing to lay down his or her life for the child. But the coaches, the bus drivers, the tutors have a different stake in the matter. They care. No one would accuse them of not caring. But it's not the same level of care of the father, the mother. So in the spiritual realm, he's making this point that we grasp. Many people claim to be spiritual guides, but there's very few who relate as a parent You have 10,000 teachers, but only a few have actual spiritual authority from God in your life. And so Paul writes here, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Who are the fathers? Who actually has authority in your spiritual life? It's the Christian leaders God's placed over the church in Corinth, and Paul's part of it. Moving on to the next point he makes. Now, building on that, point two, God has raised up true spiritual guides. Let me read verse 15b to 19. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And what does all this mean? So when Paul wrote, I became your father in Christ, how? Through the gospel. He says he's their father in Christ, referring to their conversions, their faith union with God, our father in heaven. How did Paul become their father in Christ? Through the gospel. And the word gospel here should be understood as action mode, that Paul became their father through actively bringing them the good news through his preaching the gospel to them. Parents demonstrate how children in the family are to live in that family. So Paul, being a father to him, to them, demonstrated through his life the way that they should live. You know, little eyes are always watching the parents. It's a huge responsibility for parents. The young child wants to go wherever the parent goes. The young child wants to do whatever the parent does. It's this parental status of Paul in relating to the church in Corinth that he's highlighting so that's why he could write here in verse 16 that they now needed to imitate Paul. Why would they need to imitate Paul? 
because he has that role of father to them. Think about it. If every believer in Corinth were like Paul, what sort of church would it be? And Paul was the pattern. They were to take Paul as their pattern and attempt to repeat the pattern. Paul was the example. They were to imitate the example or use his life as a model for their own lives. And by their conduct, they were to prove their parentage, prove that Paul is their father. He trained them well, and they were living as their spiritual father would live, that he had influenced them. Paul is saying, take your cue from me, which is what? As he's been laboring to describe throughout the letter, the lifestyle of the believer, specifically the believers in Corinth, should reflect the experience of having died with Christ by faith and having been risen again with Christ by faith. The apostle himself had died with Christ by faith, and so every believer had died with Christ and risen again with Christ. That's the model. Verse 17, he says, that is why all these things that Paul had written, he says, that is why I sent Timothy. Because imitating Paul were the grounds on which Paul sent Timothy to visit the, the church in Corinth because Timothy will be a living imitation of Paul. A child of Paul's in the Lord, he writes, would remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. Timothy would be an example to them of flesh and blood living out the gospel of cross and empty tomb. Timothy was the sermon illustration, live, 24 hours a day, living among them in the church in Corinth. That's why I sent him, he says. Paul's writing about these things. Timothy's acting them out in real time. What Paul's writing is in line with how Timothy's living. If all the believers in Corinth were to be like Timothy, what sort of church would it be? And Paul's teaching the same things everywhere. He says, I don't make any special exception for Corinth. I'm not trying to build some super church there. It's the same kind of church that Christ is building everywhere. It's basic Christianity. It's all the things that we fundamentally need to have. The same things everywhere in every church, he writes. But it was in Corinth that they alone had the advantage of the one role model Timothy. I'm sending him to you. You get Timothy out of all the churches. He's visiting you. If every church member were like you, what sort of church would your church be? I think that's a valuable question to ask ourselves. Timothy exemplifies the gospel lifestyle. Timothy is found faithful, Paul describes him. The thing that he had been talking about earlier in this very chapter. Timothy's conduct was a teaching tool. All the churches are being formed in the same way. The Christ pattern the Paul pattern, the Timothy pattern. It's the same pattern. It's the basic Christian pattern. All the churches unified as one, holy. We use the word Catholic, apostolic churches. The churches of Paul were consistent. The example of Christ, the example of Paul and Timothy are consistent. The teaching matches up with the living. They're all consistent with each other. The spiritual guides, to follow the title of the message and what he's Hammering away at here, the spiritual guides line up with both the teaching and the living with what's been established in all Christian churches everywhere by now as we read 2,000 years worth. Verse 18, Paul wrote that some people were puffed up, same word he had used previously, puffed up or arrogant. They believed that only Timothy would visit and Paul would not visit. So without Paul visiting, they're kind of getting away with it. Now what does all this mean? Imagine that your little brothers and sisters are put in your charge and they find out that mom and dad are not coming. 
All you have is the big brother or the big sister to implement the rule. They're not going to settle down easily. But the moment you say, mom is on her way, then they settle down. And that's the dynamic here. They're rebellious, and so they won't settle down if it's just Timothy, their example. If Paul himself was coming, it would be a different matter. So they puff themselves up, and he's saying, I got you on that. Verse 19, Paul corrected that notion by writing that he himself would come, furthermore, that he would come soon. What would Paul do when he arrived? This is important. He would find out not their talk, but rather whether their living matched their talk. Paul did not want to investigate their words only, but their lives also. The parental task is not to hear the right answer, but to keep at it until we see the right behavior. That's the parental task. Christianity is not just talking right. Christianity is living right. This is plain, clear teaching, elementary reminders that he's giving to the church in Corinth because they needed it. We move to our third point, true spiritual guides show kingdom power and love. Let me read verses 20 and 21 again. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So we start with verse 20, the word power. The word power derives its meaning from its contrast to the word talk. You have two things here, talk and power. What is power in contrast to talk? So the central point of power is possessing the ability to carry a deed through effectively and doing so. Not just talking about it, but making it happen. That's power. And then he mentions that this is the kingdom of God we're talking about. Paul very rarely uses the phrase kingdom of God. You read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. It's his number one topic. and Not so much in the rest of the New Testament. It's mentioned, and of course, it's using different words, but here he uses the actual phrase, kingdom of God. But we need to understand that when you use the word kingdom, it's actually a word that's better understood as reigning, present reigning. It's not an area, it's not a geography, it's not acreage. It's the activity of God, the kingdom of God, the reigning of God, the active ruling of God. When you understand it that way, and then you read it again, it says, for the reigning of God does not consist in talk but in power. The kingdom of God refers to the present activity of God in the church in Corinth. I like the C.S. Lewis phrase, Aslan, the lion in the Chronicles of the Narnia stories, represents God. Aslan, the lion, is on the move. It reminds us that God himself is on the move. He's reigning and actively at work. So we ask the question, what Paul's writing in verse 20, where is the reign of God seen in Corinth? Where's the, the rule or active reign of God at work in Corinth today? How is God on the move in your life and in our lives as a community? Not in what merely people say, but in what people actually do. The talk versus the power. The talk versus the actions. What did Paul want to find out when he came? He's coming and he's coming soon. What does he want to find out? That's what's important for us to see here. That's what he's getting at. That's the whole point of this passage. In verse 19, when Paul came, he wanted to find out not just the talk of puffed up people in Corinth, but their power, their ability, their actions to unify the church. Paul did not want to discover which rhetoric was prevailing, but rather whether the living showed the reality of God on the move, building up, purifying, unifying his church, and bringing it to a place of peace once again. 
That's what verse 20 is about. The reign of God does not consist in power, and talk but in power. And he continues that idea in verse 21. This is all a buildup for his final verse. This is, this is his crescendo. This is his final point. Verse 21. So Paul puts this question to the people of the church. What do you wish? It could be well translated, which do you wish? Like we, we would say it in English, what's it going to be? Apple or an orange? What's it going to be? You want a bag of chips or a bag of nuts? Which is it going to be? There's a choice between two things, and he says, which one do you want? He's communicating that choice is actually up to them. And what are the two choices? It's, careful, it's important that we carefully understand. Verse 21, based on their answer, Paul's deliberate, deliberating about which approach to use when he arrived. Paul's ready for whichever one was needed, whichever one was better for their needs. Think about this. Mother says to the children, just wait till your father comes home. And here it can be said to the rebellious church, just wait until your apostle comes home. Two options are given. A, Paul could lovingly approach them with a rod in his hand, the rod of correction. Or B, Paul could lovingly approach them with a spirit of gentleness. It's important to understand this accurately. Paul wrote similarly in another place, when writing in a mirror context about correcting and restoring another church, Galatians 6.1, listen to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1. Same, same thing there. The question for Paul in both places, Galatians 6.1, 1 Corinthians 4.21, the question for Paul in both places was not the question of whether Paul would be a big meanie or Paul would be loving. The question for Paul, for his approach, would be always loving. And which of the two loving approaches would he take? He's like a father. And the question for Father Paul is whether his love should be expressed with a rod or whether his love should be expressed with a spirit of gentleness. Does the child need a spanking or a hug? The spanking is from love. The hug is from love. Discipline is love. The parent who spanks the child loves the child enough to correct the child. The parent who hugs the child loves the child enough to see that on that occasion the child is already beginning to see his or her wrongs and needs the hug of encouragement along that route. Please notice Paul's decision about which way to show love is not based on Paul's own mood. Rather, Paul's decision was to be based on the response of the Corinthians to the admonition he had already given them. I remind you, and I ask if you're open to it, to look back to verse 14 once more. When Paul explained that his reason for writing was to admonish them, not to shame them, that's when he revealed the admonishment and their need to respond to it. What will be their response? Listen to verse 14 carefully. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Balls in their court. What will the children do in response to his newthetic counseling, his admonishment, his explaining to them, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen. What will be their answer to Paul, the father, the guide, explaining to them that they have two options? He loved them enough to admonish them. That has been accomplished. Now, based on the response to his admonishment, he would love them further. 
either by the love of applying the rod or by the love of applying the spirit of gentleness, the spanking or the hug. And those of you who are parents, you know it's usually the spanking followed by the hug. And he's ready for both. He's ready for whichever the church in Corinth decides. He says, what do you wish? Both are the role of the father. Both are the role of the parent. Both are the role of spiritual authority. The parent asks, which of these two ways am I to come as a parent to the situation in which my child is finding himself here and now? Which is needed here? Which form of love is for today? Paul's reluctant to bring matters to a head. But Paul remains resolved to do so if there proves to be no other way forward based on the response of the believers in Corinth. What have we seen that Christ calls us to follow him? He provides spiritual guides. Many people claim to be our spiritual guides. Only, one is our, many are, only a few are our fathers. God has raised up true spiritual guides for us, and true spiritual guides show kingdom power and love. That's my conclusion. What if understanding spiritual fatherhood What if grasping the importance of true spiritual guides, what if having true spiritual authority from God like this was an essential key for local churches to experience the move of God, God on the move in our lives individually, in our church collectively, in the united community of fellowship? What if this principle was essential? Paul's only four chapters in to a 16-chapter book, and he's already filleting this issue. I submit to you that it's essential. I try to illustrate. Most major United States cities have orchestras. Each musician is talented, very, very talented. Each could play any music they want. But if they want to play as an orchestra together... They will need to follow authority in two forms. One is the written score. They probably memorize it, but it was a written score and they're following it. And the second is the direction of the conductor live. Musicians know that there are various musical interpretations of the musical notes on the score. If the musicians were each to follow the conductor, they would be seeking the good of the orchestra, the good of even the wider audience as they enjoy the beautiful results. And that was what was needed in Corinth. What was happening in Corinth was the violins were all following one violin player. She wanted to play really fast. The brass were all playing too loud, because that's what brass tend to do. The percussion were off beat, because that's what they wanted to do, and it threw everyone off. And Paul's calling them all in this passage to look back to Christ, the conductor, who had written the musical notes, And look back to Paul, the spiritual father, who is called by Christ to organize them back to leading play beautiful music again. If only they would follow both forms of authority, the written score and the live conductor, the written instruction and the human authority, it would be a beautiful thing. Both are given by Christ. All of us want to play God. No, I don't, you're thinking. 
really examine yourself. We all want to play God. We want to sit on the throne of our own lives and judge everyone around us. He good, she bad, she bad, he good, all that. But if you want to play God, you have to know what God is like. What is God like? God has all authority, but what does he do with it? The ultimate authority of the universe lays down his authority that others may flourish. You still want to play God? Authority without love is nothing. God the Father eternally loved God the Son. But then God the Father decided to love us so much that he sent his Son to die for us. He exercised true power and authority by this action. Comes back to Christ and him crucified and him risen again. But furthermore, Jesus, the Son, also served. He was willing to come and die in our place and rise again. It's love from the Father. It's love from the Son. It's love from the Spirit. What we were meant to be is those made in God's image originally and then those remade into his image through Christ's redemptive work. We are redeemed by his Son, people yielded to his authority, receiving Christ crucified and risen, spending our whole lives then laying down our lives for others. True authority is not about laying down the hammer. True authority is about this family type of affection that longs to see another person flourish. Only when we have received this self-giving authority from Christ, we become self-giving followers of Christ and take positions of self-giving authority and follow Christ-given authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your son.